I'm going to talk to you about the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. Last time we talked about the Holy Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus. Now we get more personal and we talk about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the experience of the individual. First of all, let me address the topic of the work of the Holy Spirit in proclamation. We'll turn right away to Romans chapter 10. This is where the Apostle Paul gives a very, very logical, simple statement concerning the proclamation of the gospel. He starts out with the great affirmation of verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asks a series of very logical questions. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? That's an obvious question. That leads to another question. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? An equally logical question, which leads to another one. And how can they hear without somebody proclaiming it to them? That's obvious. And how can they proclaim unless they are sent? In other words, How can people speak the good news of the gospel with authority and conviction and power unless they have that deep-seated sense that this is from the Lord and they are speaking his truth. They are presenting his word. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved that they can't call if they don't believe, they can't believe if they haven't heard, they can't hear if they haven't been told, and they won't be told effectively and powerfully unless the people who are doing the telling have a sense that they are being sent by God with his word. Now, when he puts all that together, then he comes to a conclusion. And we read this in verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. Lord, who has believed our message? Not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And here's his conclusion. Consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Or as one of the older versions puts it, more succinctly, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All right? So we start with whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that straightforward enough? All right, then how are they going to call if they don't believe? Then how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? How are they going to hear unless they're told? 
And how are they going to be told unless the teller is sent? And it's obvious that the key then is the proclamation of the word of God. As a result of the proclamation of the word of God, people are told, they hear, they believe, they call and are saved, which is saying the same thing, only starting the other way around. Now, do you get the idea here that there really is no substitute for the proclamation of the word of God? It is fundamental. We've got to remember this, because whilst there are many, many activities in which Christians legitimately are involved, the one thing we must never shortchange people on is the proclamation, the explanation of the word of God. This is not to diminish in any way other aspects of Christian activity. It is simply a basic statement concerning the fundamental necessity for people having the chance to hear the word of God. This is particularly important in our generation, in our culture at this time, where there is a lamentable ignorance of hearing the word of God. There is a lamentable biblical illiteracy in many, many segments of our society. Now, you may say, what does this have to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in the the life of the individual? Turn to 2 Timothy now, if you would, please. We're going to look again very, very briefly at something we've already seen, but it is another fundamental aspect of our understanding of the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Got it? Whoever calls. How will they call if they don't believe? How will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear unless they're told? How will they be told unless the person is sent? What's the key? The key is the proclamation of the word. But that raises another question. What is this word? What is this word of Christ? What is this word of God? And the answer is, it is God-breathed. It is God-breathed. Now, you may remember, in the Old Testament, we looked at the Hebrew word. Can any of you remember what the Hebrew word was? Ruach. That's right. Oh, you did remember. Okay. And do you remember what ruach means? It means it means breath or wind or spirit. That's right. And when we get into the New Testament, we came across another word, and that word is what? Pneuma. That's right. And what does pneuma mean? It, it means breath or spirit or wind. When we read in this scripture here that all scripture is God-breathed, that what this is a statement concerning the activity of the Holy Spirit operating in human beings called to the task through whom he begins to write 
the word of God. Now this is stated even more specifically, as, and you'll remember this, in Peter's epistle, where he explains how this worked. Holy men of old were swept along by the Holy Spirit. They were swept along. And this is, is talking about the inspiration of the word of God. All right, so what do we see? When we think of the activity of the Holy Spirit in an individual, then we recognize that the activity of the Holy Spirit in the individual is directly related to the word of God being heard and believed and acted upon. These holy scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if you or I have in any way come into an experience whereby we have have experienced and are experiencing the salvation of God, I'll tell you how it happened. It happened somewhere along the line because the Holy Spirit inspired scriptures were presented to you in such a way that you heard and you believed and you called. That's how it works. So we see right at the base of the whole thing is the operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer's experience. All right. Now, there's so much more we could say about that, but we won't. We'll keep moving. The second aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit is in the individual is what we call the work of the Holy Spirit in initiation. Now, in other words, in bringing people into a relationship and experience of the living God. Remember that the fundamental problem for human beings is that we are created by God to live through God, ultimately accountable to God. But we've left God out of the equation. So if we're created by God, but we've left him out, well, just take God out of that little statement. We're created by fill in the blank. In order that we might live through God, but we leave God out. So we are created by an unknown in order that we might live for some unknown reason by some known power, ultimately accountable to whatever. The good postmodern word, whatever. You see. Well, that's a pretty nebulous experience, isn't it? Now, salvation is God taking the initiative to, to bring us back into a relationship with him. Now, he initiates this relationship. It is an initiative that God takes. We in and of ourselves are not inclined to seek after him. Scripture says, no one comes to the Father except the Father draws him. So we accept the fact that the initiative of God that we come into experience of God through Christ and the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, the objective side of our salvation is 
that we, we can step back and we look at the fact that the Bible tells us that God is in the business of redemption. He is in the business of reconciling people to himself. He is in the business of propitiating, of dealing with our sins, and he is in the business of justification. That is where he will declare a person on the basis of the work of Christ, not guilty, and set them free from all guilt and shame. Now, all this happens as a result of the work of Christ. These are the objective realities of the person who has called on the name of the Lord and is experiencing salvation to a greater or lesser extent in all these that I mentioned. But there is a subjective reality as well to our salvation, and it is this. Not only are we redeemed and reconciled and are our sin propitiated and we stand justified before God so there is now no condemnation in addition to all that a transforming work of God begins to take place in our lives so that it's not just a case of now I have stepped into a new relationship with God it is now subjectively, I'm going to be changed, so I actually start to live like it. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Fifty-some years ago, Jill and I got married. You've heard this over and over again. But, you know, not everybody can brag on it, so we're going to get some mileage out of it. So, So... It it didn't take long, actually. We just stood in front of the preacher, and he said a few things, and we said some things, and it was all rehearsed. And after we'd done that, I put a ring on Jill's finger. I only started wearing a ring when I came to America because English men don't wear rings. That's, you know... (laughs) Real men don't wear wings, rings, so... They don't wear wings either, but... uh, (laughs) Just angels. (laughs) Uh, so, so Jill said, you better, you better wear a ring when you're in America. I said, why? And she said, because I want those women to know you're married. <laughs> so I said, where do I wear it? In, on my finger or in my nose? <laughs> All right, what's that got to do with it? Nothing at all. So... We, we, we had this wedding, you see. At the end of all this, the preacher says, in the authority invested on me by somebody, I don't know who it was, I now proclaim you husband and wife. And that was it. That was it. And, and I suddenly had this awful, overwhelming feeling. <laughs> oh, now what have I done? Yes, sir. <laughs> I knew how to be single. I'd been single for a long time. And I was perfectly happy being single. But now I've done it, you see. And I'm married. And, and I think, I, I prayed a little prayer. Help. <laughs> Help. But, you know, from that day on, and it started very soon after that particular event I've described to you. From, from that day on, I have been in a process And the process has been simply learning how to be 
what I became. Didn't take long to become a husband. Jill would probably tell you that it has taken an inordinate (laughs) amount of time for her to be the wife that she (laughs) should be. (laughs) You get my drift, don't you? All right, so the objective reality is through the activity that took place and the authority invested in that preacher man and the promises that we made to each other, we became objectively husband and wife. Subjectively, now there had to be a change of attitude. There had to be a change of approach. There had to be a willingness to live in newness of life. That's what happened when you called on the name of the Lord and were saved. The objective reality is you were reconciled, you were redeemed, your sins were propitiated, you were justified. The subjective reality is this, the Holy Spirit came into your life now to show you progressively how to be what you became. This is the reverse of many people's understanding of religion. Many people's understanding of religion is basically this. Now look, okay, you want to join us, right? Yeah, okay. Well then, you'll have to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. And if you, if you do this and you do this long enough, you should become what you're supposed to be. And the, the, the Christian gospel turns that completely on its ear and says, no, through the activity of God in Christ, this is what you have become. Now learn to be what you have become. That's fundamental. Now you see the significance of the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual. First of all, in inspiring the word, the living word through which we come to faith. And then the Holy Spirit himself moving into the heart of the redeemed to empower them to be what they became. Now, turn, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. And I'm just going to show you different dimensions or different ways of, of describing what this looks like and the ramifications as far as our experience is concerned. Galatians chapter 4. These are familiar words to many of you, I'm sure. When the time had fully come, Galatians 4 verse 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, you'll notice the comparison that he's making there. He says, so, through the activity of God in Christ and the Spirit, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave. Of course, the Galatian epistle was written to people who were struggling with 
the place of the law now that they had been saved by grace through faith. What was the place of the law in the experience of those who were saved by grace through faith? And what Paul is explaining is this. Nobody is justified through keeping the law. Nobody is justified through keeping the law. And there's a very very simple reason for that. And it is this. The only person who keeps the law is the person who keeps all of it all the time. And nobody does. Nobody keeps all the law of God all the time. Not only in deed, but in thought as well. And so nobody is justified by the work of the law. Nobody can come before God and say, God, I have taken your law, what you say, what you require, very, very seriously indeed, and I can tell you, I can, tell you, I can look you straight in the eye, God, and I can tell you, I have kept it all. All the time. In thought and in deed. <clears throat> How about that? You've got to accept me, haven't you? You've got to accept me. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. In actual fact, we are under bondage to the law. Because if we are trying to be justified by the works of the law, then we've got to be watching our step every single second. And not only watching our step, we've got to be watching why we're taking that step. And we're going to spend all the time under such incredible introspective bondage and fear that it'll be as if we're enslaved by this thing. And the good news of the Christian gospel is this. Look, that's not how it works. That is not how it works. You are saved not through your fulfilling the works of the law. You are saved through God in grace taking the initiative, providing Christ for us who does all the work and then sending his Holy Spirit to prompt you to turn to the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord. And if you do, among other things, the Holy Spirit will come into your life. And now it's not a business, it's not a matter of you living as a slave under bondage. Now it is a matter of being born into a new experience through the life of the Holy Spirit. That's why he is saying, so through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're no longer slaves, we're sons. And then he takes his picture a little further and he says, (laughs) we don't have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus, who is the Son of God, had. We, we don't, we can't have. We are not of the same essence as Jesus is to the Father. But it's as if we have been adopted into the family. Adopted into the family. I heard some kids arguing one day. In fact, I was, I was reminded of this when our children were, were young on one occasion. And poor old Pete, not being number three, he was at the mercy of numbers one and two. And, and he'd done something that they didn't like very much. And they had said to him, the trouble with you is you are adopted. 
he said, so he comes to his mommy and says, mommy, what's adopted? He said, David and Judy said, I was adopted. You see. Well, what would, I was reminded of that when I, when I heard a, a, a child talking one day and she said, you know, I'm adopted. Totally different. I'm adopted. She said, these two were born in this family. They couldn't do anything about it. But she said, I was chosen. I was chosen. And there's the essence. That is what Paul is talking about here. We're not slaves anymore to the law. We are by the grace of God in Christ, drawn into his family. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. We're born again of his spirit. And we begin to treat the Father now not as the one that we are terrified of because we're living in bondage to his law that condemns us, but rather we begin to speak to him as our own dear father. You see what a difference this is. See what an entirely transforming difference this makes in our lives. And how does it work? How does it happen? It is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. There is so much related to the work of the Holy Spirit that it is one of the major tragedies of many people's understanding of the Christian gospel that they know so little about the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's move on. Now, number four, Let's talk about the, the spirit and the washing or the cleansing. Washing and cleansing. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Oh, let me just tell you before, before I read this passage. When we had our first service in this building, a dear friend of mine, a Presbyterian minister from Chattanooga, Tennessee, called Ben Hayden, came to preach. And I was so excited that Ben was going to preach. He was a very unusual guy. Before he was a Christian, he was a newspaper editor and an attorney and an alcoholic. And he used to, he used to talk quite openly about all, all these three things. And then God just got hold of him and... and thoroughly changed me, became a very powerful preacher. I was thrilled when, at my invitation, he came to speak at the dedication of this building. I was horrified when he got up and said, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. I thought, boy, this is going to be a great message for encouragement to us, and boy, what a wonderful building this is, and Wow, aren't you thrilled? And all of a sudden, this is what he started to read. Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The more he read, the further down I slid in my, in my seat. 
I'm looking around all these people who are celebrating this new building. And he paused. Then he paused. And he said, and that's what some of you were. That's what some of you were. And then he went on. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And then dear old Ben hit the nail right on the head and he said, don't get any big ideas about the church. That's what the church is. That's what the church is. It's just a bunch of sinners who know what it is. So the action of the grace of God and the work of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to know their sins have been washed away. The Spirit of God has given them newness of life. It was a great message. And it set the tone for Elmbrook Church at 777 South Barker Road. We've never moved away from that understanding. We've got to keep proclaiming this. That's why we keep on insisting whosoever will may come. Not in order that we might continue in our old life, but in order that we might know the work of grace and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. He keeps saying, but. In other words, this adversative is repeated three times. So to make it, this is the difference that he has made in your life. And this is what has happened. The Holy Spirit has brought a cleansing sense, a taking away of guilt. It is that he has whispered in your heart, you are loved, you are accepted, you are forgiven. And you begin to have that tremendous sense of relief. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So are we getting a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual? All right, number five, the Spirit and renewal the spirit and renewal now there are so many scriptures here let me encourage you to turn for a minute to Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules do not handle do not taste do not touch These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. All right. He was referring to a particular problem that they had in the church in Colossae at that time. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Now, notice where he starts out this piece. 
in verse 20, since you died with Christ, now chapter 3, verse 1, what does he say? Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he goes on to show this tremendous picture of the experience of the believer. Now, the experience of the, of the believer is predicated on this idea. In addition to Christ dying for the believer, the believer, Paul says, died with Christ. In addition to Christ dying for the believer, the believer died with Christ. Not only did the believer die with Christ, but Paul says, and then having died with Christ, we have been raised with him in newness of life. All right? Now, just keep that in mind and turn back, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Now, here's this startling statement again. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? <laughs> By the way, Paul expects him to know that. Don't you know that, he said? <laughs> don't you know don't you know that if you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So here's the same picture. It is the union of the believer with Christ in his death and the union of the believer with Christ in his resurrection. Now turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2, just for a minute, and we'll put, we'll put all this together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace towards us. All right, I just got a note from the conference I'm going to do in Austria. It's a men's conference. I go there every other year, and I've been doing that for about 50 years to this same area of Austria. And this time they said, oh, by the way, we've advertised your subject. And so I thought, oh, I wonder what it is. So I read on a little bit, and 
And my subject is dead man walking. Dead man walking. What do you think they were thinking about? They're thinking about these, these passages, Ephesians 2, Romans 6, Colossians 3. So I thought, oh, that's good. That's, that's good. And I know exactly what I, what, what, what I can talk about on this whole thing. Because, you see, that's, that's what a Christian is. A, a Christian is a dead man walking, or a dead woman walking. Because as far as our sins were concerned, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That is, cut off from God. That's what Ephesians 2 says. But it then goes on to explain that when we, by the Holy Spirit, have our eyes open and our hearts moved and we are drawn to Christ, we see the grace of God drawing us to the work of Christ through the activity of the Holy Spirit. And even in our spiritual deadness, he alone can begin to impart this truth to us. He alone is the one who can change our hearts, even in their spiritual deadness. He alone is the one who takes these initiatives. And he draws us to himself. And as we respond, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, you remember? As we respond to the Spirit-inspired word, guess what happens? We call on the name of the Lord. Why do we do that? Because we've heard it and we believe it and we call and are saved. And why did we do that? Because of the power of the Spirit at work in the inspired word. And then what happens? We call on the name of the Lord and we're saved. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. Our sins are propitiated and we have become Raised with Christ. We have become raised with Christ. We are united with him as far as God's reckoning is concerned. There's a problem. (laughs) There's a problem. This old dead man has now been raised, but he's still stuck in what he was. And I said, no, God sent his spirit into our hearts so that we can now begin to walk in newness of life. You see how utterly dependent we are on the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you see how so much we miss out in our understanding of the work of grace if we do not factor in what the Scripture clearly teaches about the work of the Holy Spirit? Now, this dead man walking, or this, if you like, this renewal this resurrection life that we experience of, of Christ demonstrates itself in different ways. And I've given you two references to check up on uh, about the renewed life, Romans chapter 12 and uh, Colossians chapter 3. All right, we won't spend any more time on, on that particular aspect. Number six, the work of the Holy Spirit in initiation is the work of the Holy Spirit in rebirth. We're all familiar with the story, I'm sure, of Jesus and Nicodemus recorded for us in John chapter 3. 
And in John chapter 3, we have the record of this very, very gifted, highly regarded, very, very respectable Jewish leader who'd heard about this young man, Jesus, who's come down from Nazareth and from Galilee and is in Jerusalem and he's causing quite a stir. And so this very learned, gracious, highly respected man uh, comes quietly at night, doesn't want to make a big stir, and he engages in conversation with Jesus. He's very, very complimentary to Jesus. And he says, it is very, very obvious, young man, from what you're doing, that God is with you. And Jesus, I'm sure this is an abbreviated version of the conversation, at least I hope it is, because Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you very much. He, he just says, you need to be born again. Now, that's what we call cutting to the chase. You see, you sort of, you know, just get rid of the happy talk, but you don't do that. At least we, we wouldn't do that. Well, the British wouldn't do that. You see, <laughs> you'd have to talk all the way around the subject to get to it. This man now expostulates. What, what do you mean? Born again. Can a man enter his mother's womb the second time? Be born again. <laughs> I was preaching in Australia one, one Sunday morning, and it was Easter day. I was in this church. I didn't know anybody in the church. They didn't know who I was. But I was speaking at a convention nearby, and they'd put me in this church on Sunday morning. So, so they put me up there, so I preached. So I just looked at the people. I said, I have a question I want to ask you. Can a man enter his mother's womb and be born again? And one of these outspoken Australian women sitting on the back row shouted out, well, that's a daft question if I ever heard one. (laughs) And I said, yes, I think you're right. I said, it wasn't original with me. It was was Nicodemus, who was pretty smart, actually. And so, but he was confused. He was confused. And and I said, there's a lot of of confusion about what it it means to be be born again. So this lady was very, very helpful. She gave me a nice in on that particular subject. I asked her if she'd like to travel with me afterwards, and we could, (laughs) you know, she made my work so easy. Just kidding. But anyway, the, the story of, of Jesus and Nicodemus it goes on to develop as Jesus picks on this theme. And he goes a little further. He said, now look, unless you're born again, you will not only not enter the kingdom, but you won't even understand it. You won't get it. It won't make any sense to you at all. And so Nicodemus now says, you know, he gets into a bit of an argument with him right now. And then Jesus said this, now look, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's pretty obvious, but what did he mean? What he meant was, it's like physical birth. A child is born physically as a result of physical action. That's how it works. He said, in a parallel sense from that, A person is born spiritually through spiritual action. And this action is the action of God where he comes into the life 
of the person who is spiritually dead and imparts newness of life to them. But how does this life come? And Jesus says it comes through water and the Spirit. It comes through water and the Spirit. Now, this is a somewhat ambiguous statement, and people in the Christian church have been arguing about it ever since. Some say water stands for baptism, and Spirit stands for the work of the Spirit. Some even go as far as to say water stands for baptism, and the Spirit comes at confirmation. So you're born again through your baptism and your confirmation. Other people say, no, water means cleansing, and spirit means the regenerating activity of the spirit. And I think there would be general agreement on the, on the second one. And other people would say it's the baptism and confirmation. I believe that what Jesus is saying here, and we interpret it in the light of other scriptures, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're not only experiencing the impartation of the forgiving cleansing of God, but we also experience the rejuvenating, the regenerating, the restoring, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. People often talk about the fact that they had a born-again experience. You can never read that expression in your Bible, a born-again experience. What you will read in the Bible is this, that if you are talking about being born again, the whole point of it is that you are born again to live anew. I know for a fact I was born on the 9th of November, 1930, in Millham, Cumbria, England. I know that for a fact. I remember it clearly. <laughs> no, I don't remember it at all. Actually, I have a very, very poor memory. I don't remember it at all. And whilst I cannot empirically prove to you that I was born on the 9th of November 1930 in Millham, Cumbria, England, I can absolutely adamantly insist I was born. And do you know why? Because I'm alive. And you know what the evidence of being born again of the Spirit is? Dead man walking. Dead man walking. It is the renewing, regenerating, refreshing work of the Spirit, enabling us to move, walk in newness of life. All right, number seven. Can you believe that we're getting through this so quickly? <laughs> you may as well. I can't. <laughs> Number seven. The spirit and sanctification. The spirit and sanctification. All right. Sanctification is used in different ways in, in the scripture. Gordon Fee says Paul's primary use of sanctification is a metaphor for conversion not a reference to the work of grace following conversion. All right. Now, and the reason he says that is, well, first of all, because he believes that, but he's differentiating between sanctification as an 
once and for all action and sanctification as an ongoing process. And the, the, the sanctification is used in both ways. Sanctification, the word for sanctification, is related to the word for saint. And it is related also for the word holy. So when, when you read sanctification or saint or holy, they're all first cousins. The basic idea of holy, you've been listening very patiently, so I'll tell you another story here. And I've used this story before, so, you know, put up with it if you've heard it before. But if you haven't, it will be helpful. But the Hebrew word for holy is related to the verb to cut. Okay? Now, now that, that, that will be helpful if you, rem- if you remember that. Now, or, now, here's the story. I promise you, you'll remember this illustration. I, I'm not stupid enough to think you'll remember the point of it, but you'll, you'll enjoy the, this story. You are busy working at home, getting supper ready, and the phone rings. You're momentarily distracted as you're cutting up the salad, and you nick your finger. You don't even notice that because you go run over to get the phone, and it's your wife. I told you this is a memorable story. Guys, you're making supper, and it's your wife. (laughs) And she says, oh, I am so excited. I've had such a wonderful day at the office. The inspectors have been here, and they've given me a top grading, and they've given me a promotion. We're probably going to have to move, but I am so excited. Did did you take the dog to the vet? Did you get the kids to school? Have you done the laundry? Oh, by the way, I've invited the inspectors to come and have dinner, and I know it's rather short notice, but you're so wonderful at stretching it, and I love you so much. Oh, and we're in the car at the end of the block. We'll be there in just a minute. <laughs> so, uh, so you say, ah, women, and you put down the phone. And then you say, oh, God, oh, now I've got to stretch this salad. And you look, uh, and you, you say, what's that in the salad? <laughs> and you've completely forgotten you'd cut your finger. And you realize, oh boy, I cut my finger now. And the part of your finger that you cut (laughs) is now over there. And so you say, hmm, that is cut. It is now separate. It is really quite distinct. It is wholly other. It is something else. Now, what have I just done for you? I've defined holy. I've defined holy for you. It holy is separate, wholly other, set apart, something else. Now, some of you are going to say, I I don't know about that. I I mean, holy holy means separate from sin. You say, well, I agree. It's it's separate. But saying the holy means separate from sin is a secondary meaning that comes from the basic primary meaning of separate or set apart. 
Now, I can prove this to you very, very easily. This is what you read in your Bible. Take off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you are standing is what? Oh, sinless ground. I've never seen sinless ground before. Isn't that interesting? All right. Is that what it means? Or in the tabernacle and in the temple, they had pots and pans that were holy. <laughs> wow. A sinless old pot. Is that what it means? No. Doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that it is set apart. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, in addition to all the stuff that I've been talking about, the work of the Holy Spirit sets you apart. You are utterly distinct. You are completely other. We can use the vernacular You are something else. You are something else. That's why, you see, we sing, and you've probably sung it a few thousand times, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. What are you saying? You're something else. You are holy other. You are completely distinct. And the secondary meaning, of course, is this. You are holy, other, you're totally separate. You are utterly distinct from us, and we are sinners. So you are, of course, holy God, separate from sin. There's the secondary meaning. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit, then? The work of the Holy Spirit... Gordon Fee says in Paul's writings, when he talks about sanctified or set apart or holy or saint, saint, that's why you see the Apostle Paul sometimes addresses his letters to saints, the saints who are in whatever city he's talking about. The saints, what does that mean? They are the set apart ones. Who are they? They're the ones in whom the Holy Spirit has been at work, who has made them distinct, who has now said, now you belong to Jesus. Now you belong to Jesus. And now that you belong to Jesus, it's very obvious that you are going to be a marked person. Live like it. Live like it. I've often told you that how I joined the Marines as an 18-year-old because I liked the uniform, which was a stupid thing to do. But 18, you can't expect too much. 18-year-olds, do they think when they have an 18th birthday, they suddenly burst out of young adulthood into total maturity? (laughs) You see? I saw a great ad the other day. It said, if your young adult drives as if part of his brain is missing it's because it is (laughs) 
Okay. Well, part of my brain was missing. I joined the Marines because I like I like the uniform. And I thought I was going to just walk in there and get this uniform. And I was going to go downtown and march around in my uniform. You see, you know what? They took one look at me and they made it very, very clear. There was no way they were going to give me one of those uniforms. No way. i tell you what they did do. They began to put me through the meat grinder. And as they started putting me through the meat grinder, I began to think... I never expected this. Which incidentally is, Jill is threatening to write a book of that title. <laughs> I think it's about me, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I never expected, I never expected it. But you know what happened? As they began to work on me, work on me, work on me, work on me, week after week, after week, after week, eventually, we graduated from our basic training. And then they gave me the uniform. But when I was at the point of saying, wow, I never expected this, I thought to myself, I'm going home. And then I realized I wasn't going home. I had been set apart. I'd been set apart. I didn't look like it. Didn't behave like it, didn't think like it, but that was done. I was sanctified, if you like. Now it was a case of getting into the process. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that part of the action of the Holy Spirit is that he sets us apart for Christ and then he begins the process of making us look like it. You've got your references there. Okay, number eight, the spirit as down payment. Some friends wrote to me today and said they had just put down earnest money on a house. Earnest money on a house. What does that mean? Well, you know what it means. If you're buying a house, you sign up and you give a percentage of the cost to show that all things being equal, you will come to the closing date and you will have the rest of the money there. The down payment, the earnest, the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he is there, he will make his presence felt, He will begin to reveal things to you about yourself and about Jesus and about life that are totally new to you. You will begin to find that you have an entirely different outlook on so many different things and you'll say, what is happening to me? And one of the things that's happening to you is that God is giving you the inner witness of the fact that he has begun a good work in you through the Holy Spirit, and that's the down payment. And that's a promise that there will be closing day one day, and he'll close the deal. And that's where your assurance comes from. Now, you've got all kinds of references to that that I've given them to you. Spirit as first fruits is number nine. He is not only the guarantee that God will close the deal, 
that he is the living evidence. He is the one who begins to give us a taste of what it is that lies ahead. (laughs) You know, life in the Christian community can be wonderful or it can be awful, can't it? It can be such a loving, caring, supportive community. Or it can be, at times, a very, very difficult, unforgiving community. But when we get glimpses of the loving, caring, supporting community, even though we recognize the other things, what does that say to you? It says to you, you know, the Holy Spirit is at work here, you know. He is at work here. These are the first fruits. Now, we know that they are the first fruits in the sense of this is the beginning of what it's eventually going to be like. I've heard people say when they've had a wonderful time with believers in worship experience or something like that, or when we've taken people to the Holy Land, we've often heard them people say, this, this is like a taste of heaven. Like a taste of heaven. What are they saying? Well, that's another way of saying the Spirit of God is working in my heart and giving me a sense of first fruits. You know what first fruits was, don't you? The, the, the Hebrew people, when they harvested their crop, they would take the first sheaf of grain and they would tie it up and they wouldn't cut any more until they'd been to the temple and they offered it to the Lord. First fruits. First fruits. And that was a statement. Lord, we're going to bring everything we are and everything that we have to you. But here's the first fruits now. So the Holy Spirit acts as first fruits and he gives us little tastes of what it is that we can anticipate in the days ahead. And number 10, and finally, the Holy Spirit operates as the seal. The seal signifies authenticity ownership and the protection of the owner. I don't have time to go into that. You can do that on your own. All right, well, there are some aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual.